there was a line in that song about depression, and um, my heart is really heavy for a man that I know this morning that is walking through that. And I would just ask you to pray along with me for that man right now um, that Jesus would be ever more evident to him this morning. He needs to be lifted up by Jesus this morning, this morning. Not someone here, not someone here, but somebody I know that I've had conversations with this week, and he just needs a touch from Jesus this morning. So would you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, that song. We thank you for the name of Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to say your name, and it is more than just a name to us. You are our Savior, our, our Master, our Messiah. And Lord, this morning, I pray for this young man as he, as he uh, stands in front of others and as he and he has the responsibilities as he has as a father. Um, I just pray a fresh touch of you, of, of you, an awareness of who you are to break through that darkness, to break through that depression, to break through that. And his focus again would be completely on you. And so, Lord, we put this, we put this young man into your hands this day. In thy precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you for doing that for me. Um, some announcements this morning. We do have, this is the last of them. So if you didn't get a scripture journal and you want one, again, it's now these are $80 a piece. But anyway, I just keep raising the price. No, if you want one, make sure to get one. Um, we're continuing through the book of uh, 1 Peter. And it's just a way of reading the scriptures together. Also jotting down some notes. If you didn't get a sermon outline, I think we have some extras back there. This just helps you to not have to write down everything that's on the on the screens. Um, some other announcements that I have is I want to thank everybody for doing the online survey. Um, we had 142 that filled that out, which is a good number. And so we'll be looking forward to September 18th when after the second service, we'll come back in here uh, after some food. And we'll have the survey says, and we'll see how we how we collectively uh, talked about our church and what what's there. I'm also in my last week of conversations uh, with people. I'm up to 103, and so I've crossed over the barrier there. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't call me up and say, "Hey, Pastor, I'd love to sit down and just talk to you and get to know who you are." And I get to know who you are. Those are really important conversations because it helps me to know you and know our congregation, our congregation better. Um, I had a conversation after the service last Sunday when I gave out the Oreo cookies, and I, I can't remember the lady that came up to me, and she said, if you do that again, ham and cheese, please. That's what she was, she made that. Um, I want to make an announcement about to all the men, we're going to have a, a men's breakfast the last Saturday in September, the last Saturday in September at 8 o'clock. And um, it's more than just uh, food and fellowship. It's a time for me to speak to all the guys in the church. So I hope you can put that on your calendar. One last thing. Um, just uh, we're we going to finish up chapter two today. So that means in between each chapter, we have standalone sermons. So next Sunday, it will be a standalone sermon. And I'm going to talk about biblical terms and why biblical terms are really important and they're, they're powerful. And so we need to, 
make sure that we're following in on biblical terms as we go forward. Then the next Sunday, the next Sunday on the 4th, I'm going to be here and we're going to, I'm going to do a sermon called Everybody Ought to Go to Sunday School, Sunday School. So that's the sermon on that Sunday. Then I'll head down to get Stephanie. And then the Sunday after that, on our trip back, um, your newly affirmed um, elder, Scott Kingston, will bring the word on September 11th. And then back here, I'll be here on the 18th, and we'll go into chapter three. And you'll say, hey, that's a little break. But do you, did you read what is the first verse of chapter three? It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So I figured I not only need time, but I need my wife here when I, when I preach that message. That way she can uh, you know, raise her hand. Okay, so I, I think that's everything. So we are, this title of this sermon is Be Subject To. And what I've noticed in here is there's, uh, there's five times where he's, he's talking about this whole thing of submission and being subject to. Today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Um, be subject, did I skip a slide? Oh, I'm missing a slide in there. Anyways, let me read this to you. So in verse 13 in chapter 2, oh, it's on your sheet though. On verse 13 in chapter 2, he said, be subject to every human institution. Be subject to every human institution. Today, he's going to say, verse 18, he's going to say, servants, be subject to your masters. See number two there? Now, the next one, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. See a pattern going on here? Okay. Then in verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, likewise, Husbands. When he says likewise, he means everything above uh, included. And then in verse eight of chapter three, he says, finally, all of you, all of you. So there's the five parts to that. And if you look at that again um, on your sheet there, that's another Oreo construct or sandwich construct because he starts by saying to everybody and then he breaks down into these distinct groups and then he ends his argument with everybody, listen up again. Okay, some, some review here, be subject. Again, last week, that's a military term. That's a term that means you're voluntarily arrange yourself under the authority of another. You voluntarily arrange yourself under the authority of another. And we looked at the biblical example of Jesus at the age of 12. And he's left in Jerusalem after the Passover feast. And he's in the temple listening and, and questioning the teachers that are there. He Finally, his parents find him, and they have a little exchange. And at the end of the exchange, um, it says that Jesus uh, went with his parents. He, he was obedient to them. He was submissive to them. He was subject to them and went back to Nazareth and, and grew up there. So he arranged himself voluntarily under the authority of his parents. We looked at these two phrases too, for the Lord's sake and as servants of God, for the Lord's sake and as servants of God. And we realized that, wait a minute, there's a hierarchy in the Christian life and God is at the top of that hierarchy for the Lord. Everything that we do is for the Lord's sake. Everything that we do is because we are servants of God. So we honor everyone and the emperor. We love the brotherhood and, and we fear God. So Peter is still speaking about their conduct. That's the main point here. He's saying, take a look at your conduct. The first century Gentile Christians who are being heavily persecuted, 
Oh, there it is. Boy, it just appeared. Um, being heavily persecuted and being and spoke of as evil doer as evil doers. He's saying to those people, take a look at your conduct. The basic instruction is for them to continue to do good. Even in the face of being called evildoers, he says, continue to do good. Now, that made me think of Philippians 1.6. I just have it up here on the screen. For I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Continue to do good. Now, I've been teaching the songs. This one's a really neat. This is just the chorus of this song. The story behind it's really neat. It was written by Ada Haberson in 1906. And it basically got lost for 100 years. The reason it got lost is because the tune that was attributed to it to sing it was so hard to sing it that people just stopped singing the song because it was just too hard to sing the song. Well, just a couple of years ago, a man named Mark Merkel, um, Matt Merkel, from he's the worship leader at Capital City Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he found these words and he said, I think I could write a better tune to that. And so that's what he did. He wrote a new tune that was a little more singable so that we would not lose these words. And this is how it goes. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. You want to try it? He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's try it one more time, but think of the first century Gentile Christians who were persecuted. If they would have had this song, if they would have had this song while at the stake, well, with the lions that they would sing, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. I think you're getting it. Oblige me a little bit more. I know that in the church here, we lost a lot of people, and, and COVID did a number on our whole community. And um, you might be here this morning, and there used to be two of you, and there's only one of you now. Is there anyone here that's that? There used to be two of you, and there's only one of you now. Okay? Would you stand? Would you stand? Now, congregation, I want us to sing it to them. And you're going to change the words. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. For your Savior loves you so. He will hold you fast, okay? Sing it to them. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. For your Savior loves you so. He will hold you fast. Our Heavenly Father, where there was two and there's only one, 
May you just comfort these who are standing to know that you are still there and you are holding them fast. May that just be an ever-present reality this week. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. Wow. You saw some of those faces there. Make sure to come up alongside of those who, where it was two and now there's only one. And to be able to come up alongside of them and just tell them how much you are loving them and praying for them and caring for them, okay? So let's go to the scripture passage this morning, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Here's the reading of the word in full. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. I thank you so much for this passage that talks about your son, who bore our sins in his body on the tree. And we thank you this morning, Lord, for the Holy Spirit given to your children to guide us in your truth. In thy precious name, amen. So just going to walk back through this just phrase by phrase this morning. Verse 18, he starts off by saying servants. Uh, another word could be slaves. It's doulos. Um, it, it literally means one who lives in the same house as another. And so he's speaking specifically to those who came to faith in Christ, who had the position of being a slave at that time, physically being a slave at that time. I always put the caveat in here. When we talk about slavery in the Bible, there are things that are similar to things of of the slavery that we know about that happened in our country and, and around the world, basically. But there are also things that are different in it. But he's speaking to these ones who are in this position of physically being a slave when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. He says, be subject to your masters. He says, arrange yourself under the one that you were bonded to. The one that, you, that is master means the one that you belong to. So he says, slaves who are Christians, I want you to submit. I want you to voluntarily put yourself under the one that you are bonded to. And then it says, with all respect, with all respect. Now, that word respect is the same word for fear, uh, phobia, where we get phobia from. Okay, here's where I, th- I, I think, 
And many, some versions actually switch the arrangement of this around because there is only one person we fear. And who is it? God. God. If you go back up to verse 17, you'll see it. Honor everyone, love their brotherhood, honor the emperor, and what? Fear God. Fear God. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 17, it says, and if you call on him as father, as God, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear, fear in relationship to God. And I also want to show you that I think he's doing a, um, a, 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 a pattern here. So if we go back to verse 13, when he said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. So be subject for the Lord's sake because of who the Lord is to every human institution. We could look at this phrase that same way, that this phrase is not being connected to the master, your physical master, but to your God. So you could read this verse, servants, uh, with all respect or all fear of God, be subject to your masters, be subject to your masters. And then he says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So if you have a master who is good nature and suitable, they have good morals, those morals uh, weigh down to you as a physical slave, you, you are to put yourself underneath them, but also to those that are curved, crooked, and wicked. He says, also put yourself under them, those that are this way. Now, we keep going back to Paul, because Paul and Peter talk about the same thing at times. So we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he addresses this again to those who became saved while they were physical slaves. So in verse 21, it says, were you a slave when you were called? So he just asked the question, were you a slave, a physical slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So that's a difference there. There was a way of gaining their freedom. And so he says to them, if you can gain your freedom, do so, do so. Then he says in verse 22, for he who was a slave, a physical slave, when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. So he does a little irony here. He says, you were a physical slave, but now because you are spiritually free, you are a free man. You are a free man. Then he flips it over. He who was a free man or someone who was physically free at the time, when he was called by Christ, is Christ's slave, is now his slave. You were bought with a price. And it's ironic again, because slaves at times were bought with a what? With a price. But that's not the price he's talking about. He's talking about the price that was paid for your freedom, your freedom in Christ. Not, do not become slaves of men. Therefore, do not, even though you're a slave, do not become a slave spiritually of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God. So there he uses that phrase again to say, like, fear God for the Lord's sake as servants of God should remain in the situation God called him to. So there's the premise of his statement. He's talking to this group that got saved, but they're also physical slaves. That's their position in life at this time. Verse 19, 
For this is a gracious thing. I'm just taking it phrase by phrase. This is a gracious thing, mean something to rejoice and be glad in. When mindful of God, so there he brings that back in again. Where's our focus? It's on God. When our conscience is engaged toward him, what do we do? One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. So one endures sorrow to bear uh, by being under the pain, grief, annoyance, or affliction. While that is happening, while suffering unjustly, while being affected and undergoing what is undeserved. So let me put it together. With your, our focus on God, when you are bearing up under the pain of being falsely accused, rejoice and be glad. Remember who he's talking to. First century Gentile Christian is being heavily persecuted. On top of that, you're, you're physically a slave at this time to a master. And sometimes the masters are good and sometimes the masters are bad. And he says, with your focus on God, when bearing up under the pain of being falsely accused, rejoice and be glad. And everybody said what? 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 So he has to go farther and, and, and explain this. For what credit is it if? That word credit there is report or rumor. For what report or rumor is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So what kind of report or what kind of rumor is it if you've received the just punishment, the just punishment because you did something wrong and you remained, you remained as a slave and you stayed there, okay? That's one report. Then it says, but, anytime there's a but there, you circle it, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. So here's a different report. The report is, the rumor is, is that you did what was right, but received unjust punishment and you remained. Well, that's a different report. That's a different rumor. That gets people scratching their heads. Why? People usually don't do that. They usually run the other way. That's what they do. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, God sees this as something worth rejoicing and with gladness. So we are to fear God. We are to have, in that scripture, it says we're to be mindful of God. Our conscience is on him. We're in the sight of God. So where is he telling these first century Gentile Christian slaves to keep their focus? Keep your focus on God. In this hostile environment that you were in, keep a laser focus on God. Now here, it's always good to go to Jesus' words. And in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6 and verse 32, starting at verse 32, listen to these powerful words from Jesus. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. Now, the word for credit there is a different word, and it means benefit. What benefit is it to you? Or what grace is it to you if you just love those who love you back? He says, even the sinners do that. So it, at that point, you're no different than anybody else. You're no different than the sinners. He goes on. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So if he, if he says, if you're doing good just to those who do good to you, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back kind of thing. Jesus is saying, you're no different. You're no different. He goes on. He always likes to give three. And if you lend to those who 
for whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. So he says, even in this scenario, he says, if it, it, you are no different than the sinners, no different. Verse 35, but, circle it, but love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then, purpose, then your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High because, because, He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful. There's the huge command. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, if we're going to be different than those that are living in sin, in a sinful lifestyle, away from God, if we're going to be different, we need to look different because our focus is on God. And because God is this way, we are this way. Be holy as he is what? holy. The reason we are holy, the reason that we follow is because we have a God who is holy. And so Peter is telling these slaves, you need a laser focus on who God is and keep your eyes focused there. Verse 21, for this you have been called. That word called there means called aloud with a command, actually calling out to you with this command, and we've learned already that we are called to proclaim. In verse 9, we are, we are to proclaim the one, the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So our salvation is not just our own, just for us. It is so that we would proclaim the excellencies of God who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's going to give us another calling here. Because Christ also suffered for you suffered for you. He was affected for you. Peter's going to give you two things. He suffered for you. The second thing that he does, leaving you an example, leaving you an example. The word for example there is a written copy. It's talking about a manuscript. It's talking about letters. It's, it's driving that point home about how the scribes would transcribe the law and they had such a system in which they did it because they wanted to make sure that every single letter was in the right place. They would count all the words uh, in there and they would have a number of when, where the center word was. And if it was wrong, scrap it all and they'd start over again. That, that They wanted to be exact. And he's saying you have a savior who suffered for you and who is leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Literally tread in one's footsteps. Did you ever do that as a kid? Big snowstorm. And, and your dad is walking out to the barn. And what, do you, what did you do? You stepped right in his steps. You know, he took the steps first and you, you stepped right in his steps. That's what it means. That you would tread, that you would follow, that you would walk in the very steps of Jesus. So you're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and you are called to follow in Jesus' steps. Those are the two things you are called for. What is his example and how did he suffer? Peter goes in the next four verses and lays this out. Here's the example. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And as we've seen before, Peter pulls from the Old Testament, and he's going to pull from Isaiah chapter 53, the chapter that tells about the suffering servant. He's going to give us four different verses out of here. 
The verse one is, this is uh, chapter 53, verse nine, where he says, he, meaning the Messiah, was assigned a grave with the wicked. Now, this is a great prophecy verse. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and that's what he was assigned as Jesus hung on the cross, who was hanging on his right and his left. They were criminals. They were the wicked, and he would would have been assigned a grave with the wicked men. Then it says, and with rich, and with the rich in his death. Because we know, because we're on this side of the cross, we know that when he died, what happened? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man of the council, came to Pilate and said, Pilate, I would like his body. And they granted him the body of Jesus. And what did he do? He, he didn't assign him a grave with the wicked. No, he took him to most likely his own tomb that had just been hewed out of stone, which was a rich man's tomb, which, which no one had ever laid before. And so a thousand years before it ever happened, here we have the details of exactly what would happen after Jesus died on the cross. But the second half says, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is the example. If we go back to chapter two, verse one, this is one of the things that Peter mentioned. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. So here's our example that this, he had no deceit in his mouth. We are to have no deceit in our mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This Isaiah chapter 53, now he's jumping up to verse 7, where it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Um, To be reviled means literally to heap abuse upon. So when abuse was heaped upon him, how did he respond? He did not heap abuse upon them. When he was suffered, was affected, he did not threaten. That word there means he did not forbid the suffering that was there, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who is him who judges justly? Back to chapter one, verse 17. If you call on him as father, he's calling on God there, who judges impartially or judges justly according to each one's deed, conduct yourself with fear. So he, Jesus, entrusted himself, Jesus, to him, God, who judges justly. And that word for entrusting means he's giving him himself into the hands of another. So his example is that even while he is suffering, what is he doing? He's entrusting himself to God. His focus is on God, and he's putting himself in the hands of God. Now, a few few examples of this. You'll see it in Luke chapter 20. 22, when Jesus is in the garden just before he is betrayed, and uh, he's praying, and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What is he saying there? I'm entrusting this plan. I'm entrusting myself to what your will is. Go a little bit farther, chapter 23, he's hanging on the cross. 
And Jesus called out with a loud voice, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit. I put my, I put my whole life into your hands, even while I am hanging here. And then it says, when he had said this, he breathed, he breathed his last. So there's the example. Now let's go to the suffering. Verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore, meaning he carried them. He, he brought them up, our sins. And I like this, this definition of sin. What makes us not have a share in, what is sin? We don't have a share in what God gives in, in eternal life. We don't have a share in it. None of us have a share in it until we are born again, until he causes that to happen in our lives. So he carries, he brings up what we don't have a share in, in his body on the tree, literally the wood. And some versions will take you all the way to the cross, meaning on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's the purpose for him doing that. The purpose is that we be removed or depart, that we might die, we might be removed or depart from what makes us not have a share in it. Removed from our sin and breathe or live in a right relationship with God, a right condition with God. That's why he died on the tree. So that we might depart, be removed from what makes it that we don't have a share in God that we do now, and that we can breathe, that we can live a a life in right relationship with him. By his wounds, you've been healed. Takes us back to Isaiah chapter 53, now verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that brought us peace, the punishment, the suffering that he endured, that brought us peace, that brought us into a right relationship with God was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. The word for wounds there means not just a bruise. It actually means a wound that trickles blood, that there would be blood shed, and that you were healed, that you were made whole. One more verse on the suffering. For you were like sheep, you were like straying like sheep. And I think he wants you to picture it. I want you to picture sheep in a flock. And what do they do? They're, they're so focused on their, themselves. <laughs> they're so focused on the food that lots of times they can stray without even knowing. They, they pick up their head and go, hey, where'd everybody go? <laughs> because they've been so focused. He wants you to kind of picture that. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That made me think back to verse 10, when Jesus, when Peter said this statement, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Here it is. Once you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, Isaiah chapter 53, this is the last time he's pulling it from there when he says, we all like sheep have gone astray each to his own way, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the iniquity of us all. So I think it's good to go to John chapter 10, because he's, he's telling us to picture this sheep analogy, and Jesus dives deep into it. 
And most likely, this is also where Peter is getting his remembering what Jesus said about the sheep and him being the shepherd. So John chapter 10, starting at verse 1, Jesus speaking, he says, I tell you the truth. I of all authority, with all authority, I'm going to tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs over by some other way is a thief and a robber. So there's sheep in the sheep pen and there's a gate and, 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 and the one who comes through the gate is the right one. Anybody who, any other leader, any other so-called shepherd that jumps over the gate, doesn't come through the gate, doesn't come through the specific way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep, and the watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. So they had these sheep folds. It was like a community sheep fold. And so the shepherds would bring in their flocks at night, sometimes in the town, they would put them into this community sheepfold. So all the sheep were all mixed up in there. And there was a watchman that would watch the gate. And the watchman would be there, and so the shepherds could get a break from being out in the field. And the watchman was the one who would, when the shepherd came up to the, to the gate, he would allow the shepherd in. Now, if you're looking at Jesus being the shepherd, then you could look at, G, uh, at the watchman as being John the Baptist, the one that pointed to Jesus and said, you're, here's the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. So the watchman would open up the gate to the shepherd. The shepherd would walk into the whole community of sheep, and he would speak. And when he spoke, his sheep would lift up their heads, and his sheep would follow him out of that sheep pen because they know his voice. Now, when he gets done saying this, verse 6, Jesus used a figure of speech. He's telling a, a picture here, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So he goes a different route. He says in another way. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth with all authority of who he is, okay? I am the gate for the sheep. I am the very gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, and but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. There is no other way to be saved than to go through the gate, and he is saying he is the gate. There is no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ, okay? The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not a shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep, runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Then he says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm your shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He voluntarily lays himself down for his sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. 
I must bring them also. And that's the whole thing between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. What is happening during this time period is Jesus is coming to seek and save the lost. He's gathering his sheep. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. That is a very important statement. There's to be one flock and one shepherd. There's a, a thought that there's, there's a whole bunch of flocks. No. Jesus says there's one flock, there is one family of God, and there is one shepherd, only one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, what, comes to the Father except through me, through me. The reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life not only to take it up again, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, doing it voluntarily. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it again. I, the command I received from my father. Now listen to the two responses here. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said he's demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Notice there it says many, many. There's, there's the wide road and the narrow road. There's the wide gate and the narrow gate. And many follow the road to destruction. Then it says, verse 21, but others said, so these are others, these are not in the many, so these would be fewer. These are not the sayings of a man who possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I think in, in the two responses that are given there, that John gives us there, he, he lets us see that there are sheep and there are those who are not sheep. And the ones that are sheep, or at least looking at and going, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of the stuff he's saying and things he's doing, ah, this could be the one. This could be the one. So, takeaways. Of those who have responded with repentance and belief to the cornerstone, remember the cornerstone that God had laid in Zion, which is chosen and precious, but rejected by men, when you look at those groups of people, who are the ones who most identify with Jesus' suffering? It would be the slaves of that day, the servants of that day. They would learn about this Jesus who would be treated unjustly. But what would their Jesus do? He would continue to walk in, in full focus of who God is and continue to walk in the ways that God wanted him to walk. I mean, which group would be most identify with Jesus? Well, he suffered just like we suffer at times. We have an example to follow because we have someone who suffered for us to secure us an eternal home. If you think about it again, the, the term slave means uh, you live in the house of another, is literally you live in the house of another, you reside in the house of another, but, but we have a savior. We have a shepherd who gives us an example to follow, who provides another home, and that you get to reside in his home. He's going to prepare a place for you in his home to reside with him. Will we rest in his strategy living in a hostile world? See, this is the hard part right here. Will we rest in his strategy living in a, in a hostile world? Because he tells us when you live in a hostile world, uh, remember that he, that I suffered so that you could live this way by walking 
directly in my footprints. Directly in my footprints. Just how the way I acted, you act. Do we trust his strategy? Do we abide by his strategy? Do we put our footprints right in the same footprints that Jesus took? See, he keeps coming back to conduct. Our conduct. Is our conduct that that of Jesus Christ? So I put that little phrase down there. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. I think this morning there might be someone here who would say, you know what? I need to turn my eyes toward this one who laid down his life for me. You heard a lot about Jesus today and what he did for you. And maybe you're hearing it for the very first time this morning in the sense that you go, wait a minute, this, this is so. And you need to turn your eyes upon Jesus. But you could also sing this song in the sense that you've been walking with Jesus a long time, but lately you haven't been walking in his steps. And you need to turn your eyes upon Jesus again. Look full in his wonderful face. Do you know this? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Aaron, bring the team up. I want to close this time this morning. We're going to sing a final song, but I want to give that invitation. You might be here this morning and you are turning your eyes towards Jesus for the very first time. You realize he is your shepherd and you are his sheep. And, and, and you are going to repent. You're going to believe in him. And you're going to rise in obedience to follow after him. You're going to rise in obedience to walk in his steps. Or you might be here this morning and go, you know, I've been a long time sheep. <laughs> but lately, I haven't been walking in his steps. And I need to get my eyes focused back on him. Because he told me I'm called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were saved. We are called to follow in his footsteps, his very footsteps. So that might be you this morning. As we sing this final song, I always want to leave it open that I tell you, if you want to get away from the crowd and you want to come forward or sit down and have a place of prayer, to take that time to do that. If he's been speaking to you, if he's been, if he's been tugging at your heart, that just lets you know that God is. He really is. I mean, if, it, if, if something in this message has, has triggered something within you, it's not because of me. All I do is read his words. It's because God is, is tugging at your heart to move, to move toward him, turn your eyes upon him. But we just give you that opportunity this morning. If, if that's you this morning and you want to find a place here, you want somebody to pray with, you know, I'll gladly pray with you or there might be someone who sees you and know you really well, and they come up and pray with you. This should be a normal part of our, of our times together at time, is to really reflect this way about what we have heard. So let's stand.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for this scripture. Thank you for it uh, speaking so much about your son. Not only what he did in suffering, but also what he did by leaving us an example to follow. I pray this day, if there's anyone here that says, you know, I need to start walking. I need to start walking brand new in the steps of Jesus. I repent of my sins. I, I realize that he is my Savior and Lord. He is the one who rose from the grave. And, and I want to rise in obedience to follow after him all the days of my life. And I pray also for those of us, Lord, who have been in the church and, and around you a long time, but there are times when we stray like sheep and we stop walking in the footprints of Jesus. And we need to turn our eyes back towards you, realize that your strategy, your instruction is the best in the whole world because you created the world. We fear no one but you. And our fear of you means that we have a reverence for who you are and we're following after you. So Lord, work upon our hearts this day. Holy Spirit, work upon our hearts this day in thy precious name. Amen.